I'm Chelsea Sodaro, and you know, I still see myself as pretty new to the sport. I'm super curious and I want to learn from the best. And I am Eric Gilsonen. You know, everyone is a triathlete, they just don't know it yet. Who is your hero in the sport of triathlon? Finish line, whether you're the first finisher or the final finisher, is where all people come together. We're all out there together. That's what I live for. This, this is the Chelsea is and the Eric Chelsea Show. And Welcome to the Chelsea and Eric Show, part of the Beyond podcast series. Eric here. Well, as you may or may not have known, Chelsea recently had a baby girl, Skylar. They're both doing great, and Chelsea's even back to training. So triathlon world, be advised, Chelsea's back. But before Skylar showed up, Chelsea recorded some terrific conversations with a number of professional triathlete moms. So if you've not heard them yet, please do so. While Chelsea was doing her thing, I was having some conversations with friends of my own, legends in the sport, people who prospected and pioneered and endured and set the platform for today's triathlon world back in the day. And they really helped shape this all-consuming sport that we call triathlon. People I call friends, friends like Dave McGilvery, early proponent of triathlon, legendary fundraiser, early Ironman back in 1980, as well as being the race director for the Boston Marathon for the last 34 years. And that's only scratching the surface. He's run the Boston Marathon 48 years in a row. Please welcome my friend, Dave McGilvery. When you're born in Boston, there's something about it. There's no getting out of it. You do not show up to the bus stop with a Yankees hat on without getting beat severely. You are a Red Sox fan. You are a Bruins fan. You are a Celtics fan. You are a Pats fan. You are a Boston Marathon fan. I thought everybody had Patriots Day in America, but we had it off from school and we watched the race. And it evolved. And sport's such a huge part of Boston. And to today, be able to have a conversation with a friend of mine, a mentor, a leader, uh, an endurance champion, the great Dave McGilvery. It's such an honor to have you here today. Dave, welcome to Beyond. How are you? Hey, Eric. Um, you know, it works both ways, my man. Um, similarly, it's an honor and a pleasure to be in your presence too. You've oh, accomplished so much in your life and continue to. So uh, mutual admiration society going on here. And thanks for having me on the show. Oh, my pleasure. So what have you been up to lately? Uh, Gillette Stadium, where the Pats were playing, a uh, little uh, pivot last year. Tell us about uh, what you've been up to uh, helping the uh, greater New England area to Gillette Stadium. Yeah, sure. Um, well, obviously, given what we all in this country and world have been experiencing over the last 18 months, um, when the pandemic came along in March of 2020, um, you know, it hit it hit my business uh, as hard as any business out there. Um, 
And, you know, Eric, I've been putting on events, producing events, directing events, consulting on events for over 40 years. And I always felt that this industry was bulletproof, you know, that nothing was going to take us down. And along comes this pandemic, and it proved me wrong, um, at least temporarily. And when it, all my events started going over the cliff, 35 of them in total, I was like a deer in the headlights, like, oh my goodness, what do I do? Um, and, you know, I, 35 events. I was, this was going to be a banner year for my company, DMSC Sports. We had these contracts lock and loaded. We had events all over the country we were managing. And in a nanosecond, it went away. And so I went through those five stages that you hear about on death and dying. You know, first stage, denial, this can't be happening. Second stage, anger. I was mad at everyone and everything. And then negotiating a little bit, you know, maybe we can get through this somehow. And and then eventually knowing that it's real, you know, just kind of depressed and full of self-pity. And then eventually acceptance. It is what it is. Um, and I said to myself after a few months of this, hey, put your big boy pants on, right? Um, quit being so selfish. So you lost a few road races. People are getting sick. People are dying. And, you know, figure it out. So I started analyzing, maybe for the first time in 40 years, what truly are our assets? What are our skill sets? And as we're sort of drilling down on that, we asked next, are they transferable? Well, yeah, they're transferable. If we can organize 30,000 people running down the street for 26 miles, we can organize almost anything. So we started doing outdoor drive-in movie events, and we started doing outdoor graduations and renting our road race equipment to restaurants for outdoor dining. We started setting up COVID testing sites. We, in the vernacular of the times, pivoted big time, and we were able to keep a pulse you know, for the summer and fall of 2020. And then the winter came, and it all went away. It all went away, and I was faced with the same conundrum. Now what do we do? And as luck would have it, I got a phone call from a company called CIC Health, which was commissioned by the Commonwealth of Massachusetts to stand up mass vaccination sites in Massachusetts. And they called us up, and they said, we need your help. I said, what do you need? They said, we need logisticians. I said, what the heck is a logistician? <laughs> they said, you're a logistician. I said, okay, I'm a logistician. <laughs> Sign me up. And, you know, they need ops guys. They need logistical people. So I said, all right. And they said, all right, we're going to stand up Gillette Stadium. And we're going to have seven, 8,000 people come through Gillette every single day. And we're going to put shots in arms. And you're going to help us do that. And it was very similar to putting on a marathon. You know, people show up. You kind of ease their anxiety, you line them up, you send them through the course, they go through the vaccination, they go through observation, and, you know, out the door they go. 
And just like a marathon, when they leave, they feel better about themselves on the way out the door than maybe they did on the way in the door. And that's what we did. And so we stood up Gillette and we stood up Fenway Park and we stood up the Reggie Lewis Center and we stood up the Heinz Convention Center. And to this day, we have helped part of a team, always about a team. We have helped vaccinate over 1 million people to date. So I just feel like, you know, obviously (laughs) someone was looking down on us um, because we were able to help save lives, able to help keep people healthy. And we had a significant impact in bringing back our own industry. So Mm -hmm. as we morph out of the vaccination business, we're starting to morph back into the event management business. Wow. That's huge. Unbelievable. I've worn four pair of Hoka socks today because I know each pair is going to get blown off in the next half hour, hour, as long as we go on. We could talk for hours. You know, I think we've said that a few times. Mm. So back in the day, it was your childhood dream at, you know, after you went through high school and college to be playing second base at Fenway Park, maybe get a standing ovation. That did come true. At 24 years old, you did receive a standing ovation at Fenway Park. Well, as you had indicated, being from Boston, it's a very sports-minded, mm-hmm. orientated, crazed town. So as a young boy, I was just totally embedded in that whole scene of Patriots, Red Sox, Bruins, Celtics. And so for me, I wanted to be one thing only, and that that was a professional athlete as a young boy. Unfortunately, I was short in stature. So inevitably, I was always the last one cut when I went out for school sports. And I was always the last one picked when my even my friends would pick sides in the playground. And I learned a valuable lesson at the young age of like 12, 13. And that was, I I realized there were three types of pains that sometimes we go through. There's physical pain, which I, I knew how to get around and I knew how to train for. There's mental pain. Similarly, I knew how to get around and I knew how to train for. But then it's the most difficult one. And that's emotional pain. And that's debilitating. And what I was learning at that young age is the concept of rejection, that no one wanted me. And it's the worst feeling in the world to go around thinking you're not needed, or you're not wanted. Mm -hmm. And so what did I start to do? I started to run, because nobody can cut you from, from running. And I just started setting all these personal goals. And started running my age on my birthday when I was 12. I ran 12 miles, 13, 13 miles, and so forth. And then I decided to run in the Boston Marathon when I was only 17 years old. And then when I graduated from college, I heard about a friend of mine who had biked across the United States from Medford, Mass., my hometown, to Medford, Oregon. And I thought, wow, you know, he's a biker, I'm a runner. If he can bike across, I can run across. Well, that's an idiotic comparison, because I think we all know that running and biking are a little bit different. But I said, no, I want to do this. So I trained real hard. I put it all together. And um, I decided that that's what I was going to do. And at the time, I was working in the John Hancock Tower in Boston. I was 
um, training to be an actuary. I got a degree in mathematics. And I was standing at the window and I looked out the window and I saw Fenway Park and I saw a sign out in right field and a sign said, help make a dream come true, support the Jimmy Fund. So I picked up the phone because I had an epiphany and I said, um, I called the Jimmy Fund. And a guy by the name of Ken Coleman answered the phone and he was the voice of the Boston Red Sox and the executive director Mm. of the Jimmy Fund. And I said, hi, Mr. Coleman, my name is Dave. And I want to run across the country for the Jimmy Fund. Well, after he picked himself up off the floor, he said, deal. He said, the Red Sox will support you. The Jimmy Fund will support you. I said, let's do it. And that's what I decided to do. And But before I took off, I needed to find out what this Jimmy Fund was all about. And I went in and I saw those kids in the Jimmy Fund clinic being treated for cancer. And I knew at the time that the battle that I was a about to fight by running over five and a half million footsteps across America was in no way as difficult <laughs> at the, as the battle that these kids were fighting for their own life. And I saw a sign in the Jimmy Fund clinic and the sign said, God made only so many perfect heads. The rest of them have hair on mm, it. Mm. And that's when I knew about turning negatives into a positive. And that's what I was going to do. I was going to turn a negative about feeling bad about myself that I was always the last one picked and always the last one cut. And I was going to figure this out. I was just going to take a different path. So I ran across the country from Medford, Oregon to Medford, Mass, 3,452 miles in 80 days, 80 consecutive days without a day off, averaging about 45, 50 miles a day. And wouldn't you know it, uh, I finished that run on August 29th, 1978, inside Fenway Park in front of 35,000 people. And it was interesting because when I came into the park, I was told, come out of left field, run around the warning track, get the home plate, say a few words, exit the park. Well, I came in and the roar and the thunder and the players and the media were on their feet and screaming and yelling. And I said, I kept going around and around and around. They had to call the police on me to get me off the field. I said, I just ran across the continent, raising money for sick kids. I'm not getting off this field anytime soon. And that's when I How realized for the do? first time in my life, I did like three laps. And it was like the first yes. time I realized that I had become the athlete that I always wanted to be. Mm. And even though I didn't play mm. second base and play in Fenway, I was going to run in Fenway. And that moment, I, I did exactly that. And that to this day is the highlight of my athletic career. Well, and Ken Coleman, the guy that answered the phone, was the one who called you over the PA in Fenway, right, when you were coming in? That's right. He introduced me running into Fenway Park. Many a summer night on Cape Cod listening to him on the AM transistor radio. Wow. Choking me up. This is great. So you've been the race director since 88, but how did you become associated with the race. Talk about that 17, 18 year old, and then your way up running it and then being asked to become the race director. Well, when I was 15 years old, I was uh, in the garage helping my dad work in his car on Patriots Day and radio was on and I was listening to the play-by-play of the Boston Marathon and a gentleman by the name of Ron Hill from Great Britain ended up winning the race and I was pretty mesmerized by it. And you know, the weather outside was awful. And I said, how did that guy do that? And um, unfortunately, just recently, a week ago or so, um, Ron passed away at age 82. But I remember turning to my dad and I said, someday I'm going to run that race. And um, 
when I turned 17, a senior in high school, I decided I was going to go run the Boston Marathon. So uh, my brother drove me out to the start and I took off. And, you know, unfortunately, I dropped out in the hills in Newton at mile 20 and got taken to the Newton Wellesley Hospital in an ambulance <laughs> and vowed to come back the next year as an 18 year old and uh, officially run it, which I did. And I finished and I said on that day, I'm going to run this race every year for the rest of my life. So then the 1987 Boston Marathon, there was a somewhat severe wheelchair accident at the start. And then there was a mm -hmm. tripping incident with a rope that was being held across the starting line. Mm -hmm. and the gun fired without removing the rope. And the BAA, Boston Athletic Association, decided that maybe we need to hire someone to watch this thing a little bit closer. And I applied and got the job as the technical coordinator for the Boston Marathon in 1988. And I kid people by saying, uh, all I did was remove the rope <laughs> at the starting line and put a human chain of volunteers there. And I've had the job ever since. But yeah, that's how I eventually got involved with the Boston Marathon in 1988. And then in the uh, 2001, they changed my title from technical director to race director. And you know, I obviously got involved in more than just the start, the entire event, and have been involved in that capacity now for the last um, 34 years. But after 15 years of running in it during the race itself, noontime start, um, and get offered the job to help direct it, I had that proverbial conundrum again of what do I do? Do I run in it or do I help run it? And I just, even though I made a commitment to run in it, I, I couldn't see myself passing up on this opportunity to help direct it. So I just took the job and I said, I'll figure this out somehow, some way. And I was standing at the finish line that year and everything was going really well. Start went off great. And I was high-fiving all the runners. But deep in my gut, again, being full of self-pity, you know, I realized I hadn't run it. And I tapped the state police trooper on the shoulder and I said, officer, you do me a favor. He said, what? I said, will you drive me back to the start? He said, why did you forget something? I said, yeah, I forgot to run. Mm -hmm. So he drove me back to the start at eight o'clock at night. And I ran the whole thing by myself finishing mm -hmm. at 11 o'clock at, at night, dead last. And as you so well know, because you've done it with me the last few years, um, yeah. I've done it that way for the last 34 years, been the last finisher of my own race, um, which is fine. My motto in life has always been, it's my game, so it's my rules. My so rules, yeah. this is the way I can do it. And even though we only have four official waves of the Boston Marathon, I consider when I start with my friends, including you, Eric, that's the fifth and final wave of the race. We just start a little bit later than everyone else, finish later than everyone, but we get the job done on Patriots Day. And, um, you know, my hope is uh, I'll do it again this October when the marathon happens and then do it one more time next April, which will be my 50th consecutive Boston Marathon. So I'm looking forward to that. Well, I hope to be with you stride for stride in both of those. It is amazing because we were laughing. It's the first time, at least for me, the police were escorting me somewhere and it was a good reason. Um <laughs> Oh my, that's another story. So in 2013, 
there was the bombing and uh, 260 people, unfortunately, were injured. Three people died, uh, one of which was Martin Richards. Just talk about that and, uh, you know, just the effects of that and MR8. Yeah, so um, the year before was 2012. It was the hot year. It was an inferno. It was awful. You know, we treated 2,200 people. We sent 250 people to the hospital. So 2013 came, and I was like, we can't have another year like last year. And woke up that morning. It was glorious. It was perfect. This was going to be a great day. And it was. I mean, the stats went off perfectly. Um, What was interesting about the start of that race was I had a 26-second moment of silence for the 26 victims of the Sandy Hook massacre. That number 26 keeps coming up. 26 victims, and you could hear a pin drop in Hopkinton with 30,000 people, silence. And little did I know that only a few hours later, 26 miles away, we would be experiencing our own tragedy. But the races took off, and I took off on my lead motorcycle and got to the finish, and everything was great. I went up to the bleaches and saw my daughter and my son and my wife, and Gave them all a hug and went through the service area, checking in with all the team captains. Everything was great. Went in the medical tent. You know, it was such a good day. So I just decided then and checked with everyone. Time to head back out to the start and do my run. I got back out to the start and hopped in. I'm standing on the starting line and all of a sudden my phone rings and they said, you got to get back here to the finish. There were two explosions. And I'm thinking generators exploded or something along those lines. Not bombed going off. But I got really nervous and I calling my wife and there's no answer and the cell service got knocked out and I'm all worried about my own family at the finish line. And we took off and went back to the finish going 100 miles an hour down the mass turnpike and I got there in 20 minutes. And I get into the security area, which had been totally evacuated. And the first thing I did was went into the medical tent, which I had been in a couple hours earlier and there was no one in it. And now it was jammed full of people, not runners, though. And I decided, well, I'm not going to be of any help in here. I'm going to go try to find my family first. And I left the tent, and police officer stopped me. He said, where are you going? I said, I'm going up to the finish line to find my family. And they said, you can't go up there. And I said, well, I'm the race director. Here's my ID. And he says, it's not your race anymore. And that's when I realized how severe this was. I couldn't even find my family. Didn't know if they got hurt. So then I decided, okay, I have to help the 6,500 runners that got stopped. And and on and on and on it went the, the day. But, um, you know, knowing later on that three people were killed right there at the finish line, and one being an eight-year-old boy, Martin Richard, knowing that Martin was on one side of the street and my eight-year-old son was on the other side of the street sitting in the bleachers, and he saw everything. And when I eventually got home a couple of days later, my son, Luke, come up to me and gave me a hug. And he said, Dad, I never want you to direct that race again. And here's my own son associating my job with danger. And I guess he was right. It was dangerous. You know, it's a new world. But we recovered. Boston Strong, you know, people, people decided they weren't going to you know, let this get in their way. We're resilient. 
And about three months later, my son comes up to me again. He says, remember I told you I never want you to direct that race again? I said, yeah, Luke, I remember. He said, you know why? I said, why? He says, because I want to direct it. Hmm. And he had recovered. And it just made me even more determined to come back in 2014. And we did. And it was epic. And we persevered. And we took back Boylston Street. And we took back the finish line. And American wins in the name of Med Kofleski. And he wrote the names of the victims of the bombing on his bib number and crosses the finish line. And this whole day was epic. And we had recovered. And we had shown that we will not be denied our freedom, our running freedom. And, um, you know, and, and so a lot of lessons learned from 2013 and 2014. And I've always felt that the comeback is, is always stronger than the setback. And such was the case that day. Let's talk about how did you hear about Iron Man and then showing up solo to Oahu in 1980. And uh, what was your first Iron Man experience like, the original course? Yeah. Like a lot of folks, I had read about the Iron Man in uh, Barry McDermott's uh, article in the May 1979 issue of Sports Illustrated, where Tom Warren had won the year before in 78. And I, I just was mesmerized by it. And mm-hmm. I had, again, run across the country. So I had this sense that maybe I can do this. Of course, I, I wasn't a swimmer by trade or a cyclist. I was a runner. But I always felt that we are all born triathletes. Yeah. Because as kids, we all swim in the pond or in the lake or in a pool. We all bike around the neighborhood. We all run around our backyard. We just don't necessarily think about putting it all together and calling it one thing called a triathlon. So I, I did know that I, I could get this done if I worked really hard and trained for it. And so I did. And I went over to Oahu and I remember walking in the door of the Nautilus Fitness Center owned by um, Valerie Silk and her husband at the time, Hank. And uh, the first question they asked is, okay, everyone, hope you have your support team with you. I was like, huh? (laughs) I don't have any support team. I'm here alone. They said, well, there's no water stations out in the course. There's no directional signs. There's nothing. How are you going to get through 112 miles on the bike in a marathon? I said, I... I don't know. And so they threw a phone book at me and they said, call someone. I said, really? Yeah, you're going to call someone. All right. And I started rifling through names and I found a gentleman who was a Navy SEAL stationed at Pearl Harbor. And I said, hey, I'm, I'm desperate. I need a support crew. I'm doing this thing called the Iron Man. And he agreed to do it. And him and his young daughter. And they came by my hotel in a little, small, tiny Honda Civic and picked me up. I threw my bike on the roof, rolled down the window and put my arm out the window to hold the bike onto the roof (laughs) as they drove me to the start, which was done in the Alamoana Canal because they had been experiencing some hurricanes and stuff. 
the days before. So the initial swim venue got knocked out. So what they did was the first thing they did was they weighed us in on, on these bathroom scales because they said if you lost more than 10% of your body weight during the course of the event, they were going to yank you from it. I was like, what? Okay. So they weighed us in uh, at the swim start and then they weighed us in at the bike finish and they ended up weighing us two more times on the run. Funniest thing in the world, like you pull up to a, a station and you got to wait line. <laughs> You got to wait in line to get on a scale oh. for them to weigh you. And then they would radio to each other what your weight was and do the math really quick to determine whether or not you're okay to continue. Um, it was funny because a friend of mine actually went out with me. He was competing in it. This guy epitomizes the Iron Man. He can bench press 500 pounds. He's you know done a million marathons and he eats everything in sight. And I just recall during the race, him and I going back and forth on the bike. And as I'm looking towards him, he's eating all kinds of food. He's eating cupcakes and Twinkies <laughs> and fiddle faddle and Fig oh. Newtons. And he literally got on the scale and he gained weight. So while the rest of us were losing weight, he gained five pounds during the entire Ironman. Crazy. But I ended up finishing 14th overall out of 108 of us. You know, and you had the Dave Scott won it for the his first year and his his dad, Vern, and mother Dottie were out there in the car supporting him. And you had John Howard, world-class cyclist, and Bob Babbitt was in the race and a whole bunch of those folks. We didn't know each other, of course. Um, it was just down and dirty. No aero bars, no power bars, no, <laughs> no nothing. You know, just get out there and bump and grind and grind your way through the through the darn thing. So I was able to get it to get it done. And um, yeah, that was my first experience at Ironman. And that was your first triathlon? That was my very first triathlon. There weren't there weren't any triathlons right. In, right. in the US other than San Diego with you know some of those races, Tugs Tavern and whatever races were going on in, in California, but there was nothing out east here. So you said you didn't have much of a swimming background as you were a runner. And how did it go from being a kid swimmer to 2.4 in 1980? Yeah, I mean, again, it was one of those things where I did it recreationally, not competitively. But, you know, I would always try to challenge myself swimming across lakes and ponds and, and whatnot. I even got to the point where I sort of had this sense that I wanted to attempt to swim the English Channel. So I trained and trained and trained to swim the channel. And I went over to England, to Folkestone, England, with a friend, Ron Kramer. And Ron helped me, um, you know, with the whole uh, effort. We uh, were able to identify a, a pilot boat that would take us across. So I got there and I was swimming in the channel training. And we're just waiting for an appropriate day to, to get it done. And I was there for over a week. And the pilot wouldn't take us across because he said the conditions hmm. were too dangerous. And unfortunately, I had to abandon my attempt and get back on a plane and come home. Wow. So if there was ever um, something that I had hoped to have accomplished in my athletic career, 
that I didn't do was swim the English Channel. So it's it's still looming. I mean, it's not like I'm going to go do it tomorrow, but it is something that I still have out there as a carrot that maybe someday, even though I'm getting older, I'd be able to go back there and see if I can get that one done. I'll join you. I'll commit to you right now. Okay, if you do it, great. I'll do it. Let's go. Let's go in between 1980 when you did Oahu, and then you took 81 and 82 off from doing Ironman Hawaii. What happened in 81 and 82 at that time? Uh, so you didn't race, but what did you do? Well, I started my business, Eric, and um, DMSE Sports. And interestingly, when I got back from running across America, I was working for a benefit consulting firm, as I said. And when I got back, my boss said, hey, you got to get back to work tomorrow. I said, tomorrow? <laughs> I just ran across a continent. <laughs> Can I have a day or two <laughs> to recover? And um, two days later, I got a termination letter. Mm. He fired me. And I just spent three months running across the country for sick kids, and I got fired for it. And to be honest with you, it was the best thing that ever happened mm -hmm. to me. Because mm -hmm. I finally realized that, you know, maybe I didn't want to pursue what I was pursuing and I wanted to pursue something different, something I'm, I was more passionate about. And so I opened up an athletic footwear and clothing store in my hometown of Medford. Then I started putting on events to promote the store. And I realized I like putting on events more than shoes on people's feet. And I opened up DMSE Sports five doors down from my store and started putting on all these events. And the very first event I ever put on was a triathlon. And, you know, and, and it was in 1981 or 82. And, um, and basically it was as a result of me coming back from Hawaii. And I said, I want to, I want to introduce triathlon to New England. So I put on the Bay State triathlon in my hometown of Medford. And I had everyone coming to the Bay State, people like David Scott and Scott Tinley and Mark Supernant and, Kenny Glar and just all the U.S. studs from back mm -hmm. in the day came to my triathlon in my own little small town of Medford, Mass, right outside of Boston. And so I built that race, and one race led to another, you know, and then I started creating the New England Triathlon Series, and then I created the Cape Cod Endurance Triathlon, and then Sprint Triathlons, and, and I was doing, I, did, I directed 150-plus triathlons. And I was doing triathlon before I was putting on road races. So because that was going on between 80 and 83, I felt like I gave up my opportunity to compete in triathlon to give other people the opportunity to compete in triathlon by producing them for them. And it was, you know, putting on events, as you know, is, is very labor intensive and there's not a lot of time to go train for a triathlon. And I just remember the days when I did go finally back to Hawaii. I didn't stop biking for the October Ironman until after my September Cape Cod Endurance was over because it was took up so much of my time. I didn't have any sure. time to train for Ironman. I only started my training a month out from the race. So that's why I didn't go back to Hawaii in 81 or 82. But then I decided to go back in 83 and I was I did it in 83, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, and 9. Great. So, in fact, really, to get to where you're at with Boston Marathon in 88, triathlon and the portfolio of race directorships and the you know toolbox you brought, 
I'm sure it was recognized by the BAA, which helped you get to where you're at right now. So um, in 1983, in regards to a 24-hour bike, talk about that because you did that while you were race directing and the race was going on with all the participants, <laughs> um, yeah. competing and uh, working and right. running, not easy. Go ahead and talk about that. Well, as you can see, see here, Eric, there's a, there's a method to my madness. <laughs> You know, I try to make these things a very unique experience. I try to tie it into a greater purpose by fundraising and raising money for worthwhile causes. And I, I just, I just try to make them, make these things very memorable and unique. But when you do that and you involve a lot of other people in that effort, you know, you, you, you do in incur a level of pressure that you got to come through. Um, but I've always felt that pressure is a privilege. You know, it's a privilege to be in a position to be able to do these kinds of things. So after I had done the 24-hour run and 24-hour swim, I said, well, I obviously have to do a 24-hour bike. I got to put the final piece of the puzzle together. And I said, I know what I'll do. I'll bike around Spot Pond, which is where I conduct the base day triathlon, and I'll do it like on that day. So I started the day before at two in the afternoon on a Saturday. I carried a two-way radio with me, and I went through the night. And then the next morning, around five in the morning, I started seeing all the triathletes show up for my race. And I'm on the two-way radio while I'm pedaling around this five-mile loop. And I'm directing the race while while I'm doing my 24-hour bike ride. And so I could see all the traffic show up, park their car, get ready, you know, head down to the swim start. And then one by one, they're coming out of the swim venue, jumping on their bike and joining me on the five-mile loop. And when I had no one out there with me, I was the only biker on this five-mile loop. All of a sudden, whammo, there's 500 cyclists with me now, all like yelling and screaming and cheering me on and all that. And then all of a sudden, all 500 bikers are done and I'm still going. And now they turn into runners because they're running the same five mile loop that they biked Hmm. and they're running two loops for 10 miles. So they're running and they're running and I'm now I'm biking by them. And then all of a sudden there's the award ceremony and I could see it as I'm biking by it. And then all of a sudden, as I'm going around more, they're leaving. And then all of a sudden two in the afternoon on Sunday, no one's around. They're all gone. It's a ghost town, except for a few people left waiting for me to finish the bike ride. So I, I biked close to 400 miles in the, in the 20, in the 24 hours. Um, But it was, it was kind of a fun journey. It wasn't just, you know, out in the middle of nowhere and, um, it, it, I combined, you know, my, my vocation with, you know, my, my personal goal setting of, you know, doing these endurance things. Let's talk about just, a, a great New Englander, a great man, a great dad, a great endurance athlete, a hall of fame member at many different triathlon groups, Dick Hoyt and his son, Rick, yeah. uh, your relationship yeah. with them how they introduced themselves to you and how that really did catapult, you know, Jim McLaren and yeah. what Babbitt's done with CAF. Uh, talk about the Hoyts. Well, it, it, you know, we all, 
there are defining moments in mm. all our lives and you know some are good and some are not so good and it's all a function of how you process that defining moment and um one of mine was I was running ironically in a race that I now direct the Falmouth road race. Mm-hmm. And as I'm running along, I come up on uh, this gentleman who's pushing a wheelchair with his son in it. And I never seen anything quite like it. And so my first reaction was surprise, you know, second was inspiration. But then third, my competitive <laughs> nature overcame me. I'm like, I'm not letting this guy pushing a wheelchair beat me. So I just, you know, started doing these like pickups and I'm like, I can't let this guy beat me. The son of a gun beat me. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And I was like, whoa, I got to find out what this is all about. So I went up to Dick and introduced myself and one thing led to another. And, you know, I said, hey, you ever thought about doing triathlon? Because I was so into triathlon. And he's like, well, only if I can do it with Rick. And I was like, how the heck are you going to do that? He says, I don't know, but you, you're going to help me figure it out. Okay. And he came to my base date and, you know, thus began their triathlon journey. They did base date. And then, you know, Dick calls me up a few months later and he said, Rick wanted me to call you. I said, yeah, what's up? Rick wants me to see if you can get us in the Ironman in Hawaii. I said, excuse me? And they want, he, Rick wants to do the Ironman. I said, well, what about you? He says, Rick wants to do the Ironman. I said, I know Rick wants to do it. What about you? He said, Rick wants to do the Ironman. (laughs) I said, okay, I get it. I get it. Whatever Rick wants, Rick gets. Okay. I said, let me see what I can do. And I called up Valerie Silk. And I said, I got to explain this to you. And this is legit. And long story short, she trusted it and went with it. And the Hoyts went over to Hawaii, and I went over with them. And, you know, unfortunately for them, they weren't able to make the swim cutoff. And, you know, how tough it can be in Hawaii, mm-hmm. you, don't, you don't make the cutoff. You don't make the cutoff, no matter what your story is. And uh, they got pulled from the race. And then a couple of months later, Dick calls me again. Rick has a question to ask you. I said, yeah, what's that? Can you get us back into the Ironman? I'm like, oh, my goodness. How am I going to do this again? And called Valerie, and she said, yeah. So they went back and competed in the Ironman, finished. And, I mean, as they say, Eric, the rest is history, you know. And they went on to do triathlons all over the world and get inducted into the Ironman Triathlon Hall of Fame. And I inducted them into the USA Triathlon Hall of Fame just a few years ago in Arizona. So unfortunately, um, you know, Dick passed only a few months ago, you know, and it just, he left a legacy and a half in developing Team Hoyt and inspiring legions of individuals to push, you know, their disabled children or friends and be able to allow them the benefit and the opportunity to experience what we all can experience by participating in marathons and triathlons and Ironmans and road races and the Hoyts were the pioneer of that of that effort. Yes. So you've done it all in the sport, really. You know, you ran across America, you did Hawaii in 1980. You've also attended some of the first governing body worldwide meetings and you've served on the board of USAT. 
What do you think we need uh, in the sport now? And what have you seen the sport overcome already? Where are we going? Yeah, well, I, I mean, obviously, I love the sport. It gave me a business. It gave me, you know, a sense of self-confidence and self-esteem after I finished my first Ironman. I mean, you know, what I love about triathlon is you don't necessarily have to be the best at any one of the three disciplines. You got to be the best at putting the three of them together. And I was never the fastest runner, certainly not the best biker or swimmer, but you put all three together and it gave me an opportunity to be competitive. So I, I love that about, about the sport. I, I, what I also love about the sport, I think it helped give me longevity in my running career because I started off as a runner and that's all I was doing. Then I got into triathlon for like 15, 20 years. And it made me kind of slow down a little bit on the running part, but pick it up on the biking and swimming part. So the whole diversity of, you know, cross training entered this sort of my world. And it helped prevent me from getting injured. And I'm 66 years old now. And I've run 150,000 miles and done nine Ironman triathlons and run across the country a couple of times and done all these crazy things. And I'm solid. Knees are good. Hips are good. And a lot of friends of mine, you know, they they have artificial knees, artificial hips. I mean, those people who I ran with back in the 70s and 80s, they're not even running anymore. You know, and I'm like, my goodness, I am so fortunate to be able to continue to do this stuff. So that's what triathlon gave me. But from a business perspective, yeah, I went over to Avignon, France um, in 1989 and was part of the first World Congress and helped Les McDonald and Kyle Thomas and Jim Curl and all those guys way back when, Mike Gilmore, you know, helped get the sport into the Olympic Games. So I, I mean, I, I, triathlon was my life. I was representing some of the best triathletes in the world you know, the Mike Pigs and Karen Smyers and Dave Scotts and Aaron Bakers and Scott Molinas and Garrett McCarthy's and Howard Robinson's and all these people that most people today probably wouldn't even recognize. Started uh, a newsletter. I opened up a triathlon store on Cape Cod um, with uh, Mark Serpinat's dad, Mike Serpinat. I had yep. a triathlon store. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. Triathlon was a way of life back then. Now, not as much. I'm not that heavily involved in it anymore. I've sort of passed the baton off to other people to sort of, you know, navigate through the triathlon world. And But I do, I want to go back to Hawaii one more time to do my 10th Kona race. You know, I, I am getting older, not old, older. And, um, you know, next year will be my 50th Boston Marathon. Be kind of cool to do Ironman again for my 10th time. So I still have goals and objectives that maybe someday, you know, I can finish what I started. <laughs> yeah, I think in 2022, we'll see you out on the Kona Coast. I somehow think uh, that your 40 years of endurance servant leader work has uh, qualified you for that. We'll figure that one out soon enough. Okay, so favorite mantra or saying? Well, mine is, it's my game, so it's my rules. When, when I started running across the country, I mean, started running my age on my birthday. Kids would ask me, hey, what are you going to do when you're 90? I'm like, well, first of all, I want to be breathing. Then I'll get out of bed, and then I'll decide what I 
want to do, but you know, it's my game, so it's my rule. So what I want to teach people, and especially kids, it's your life to do with it as you see fit, you know, and don't ever allow anyone to tell you you can't do something and that the worst injustice you could ever do to yourself is to underestimate your own ability. And uh, those who say it cannot be done should not interrupt those who are doing it. And that's why I live my life by my own mantra. It's my game. So it's my rules. Wow. Powerful words to live by. Favorite journey. Favorite journey. Well, of course, it's my journey across America. I'll never f- forget those moments. I, You know, I what I experienced out in the road of America, all by myself in 120 degree heat uh, in the desert, you know, it, it, it's, I, I don't know, the words can't describe that experience. And I was mm-hmm. only 23 years old. You know, and I started off with that. It isn't like that was the crescendo. It was the first. I never been able to quite equal <laughs> that, that journey. But that's okay. Um, I've had many others since then, but that's the one I I will take to my grave. Yeah. Favorite sound? That's an easy one. That's the gun firing at the start of the Boston Marathon. (laughs) Your best or worst running or triathlon joke? (laughs) Well, I heard of one recently. I thought it was pretty funny. A running one. It says, uh, uh, you know, at my office, my boss asked if I, I was um, going to sign up for a 401k. <laughs> and I told him, I can't run that far. <laughs> so it's kind of funny. Very yeah. funny. In conclusion, how would you describe yourself and what you do? Uh, you know, to the newcomers of the sport, uh, what do you want to have them know about you? I think two things. One is, um, you know, the reason why I run now and the reason why I direct races. When I was asked what I did for a living, I used to mumble, ah, I'm a race director. And they're like, what? I said, I'm a race director. And they're like, what the heck do you do? Chalk mark in the road, y'all go? Now when people ask me, what do I do for a living? I say, I help raise the level of self-esteem and self-confidence of tens of thousands of people in America. That's what I do. And when asked, what the, what's the toughest part about running a marathon? The toughest part about running a marathon is signing the application, is having the courage and the guts to make the commitment. Then you have to earn the right. Then you earn the right. You do the work. You toe the line. You answer the gun. That gun. There's that gun again. Answer the gun. You run the course. You cross the finish line. You get a medal. And magic happens. You go home feeling good about yourself. And there's nothing more powerful in this world than to feel good about yourself. It's the very foundation Eric, of everything else we do in our lives. And that's what running and participating in endurance sports does. And that's why I encourage people to get in the game. Don't be a spectator. Be a participant. It's all about raising self-esteem and raising self-confidence. And then secondly is awareness. You know, when a couple of years ago, after the bombing, I was diagnosed with severe coronary artery disease. And I remember talking to my doctor, and when he diagnosed me, I said to him, zip it up. He said, what? I said, don't tell anyone. Don't tell anyone you're ill. No. Why? Because it's a ding in my armor. Like, I don't want anyone to know I'm ill, you know, because 
I, I learned a valuable lesson that day that just because you're fit doesn't mean you're healthy. I, I always thought it did. You know, those of us who do endurance sports, we think we're invincible. Well, guess what, McFly? You're not. None of us are, right? And we have to pay attention. And I said to the doctor, how do you think this happened? Was it genetics or was it self-inflicted? Probably a little of both. You know, for me, I broke some of the rules. You know, I, I thought if the furnace was hot enough, it'll burn. You know, that I could eat and do whatever I wanted. Wrong. I, I always thought sleep was overrated. I didn't need that much sleep. I wanted to get the most out of every day. Wrong. I thought, you know, I could overcome stress, but stress can add to, you know, this physical illness. I didn't realize that. It all came to a head. I had severe coronary artery disease. So I said to my doctor, I said, I got one question to ask you. He said, what? I said, is this reversible? He said, depends. I said, depends on what? He said, depends on the person. I said, well, you're looking at him. What about, what about me? He said, you and your discipline, I think you can overcome and you can have an impact on your own illness. I said, well, sign me up. So I went on a tear and I changed everything. I was on the road to like, you know, not making it. And I said, I, I gotta, I gotta fix this mess. I, I created it. I need to fix it. I reversed my severe coronary artery disease by over 40%. Went wow. back to Hawaii, did the Ironman again. Yes, then, long story short, 20, that was 214, 215, 16. I was feeling great. 217, I got the opportunity to do the World Marathon Challenge, running seven marathons in seven days on seven continents. I said, sign me up. I went, did the World Marathon Challenge. Came back, and that was in um, January, February of 2018. Came back, and all of a sudden, I could feel this discomfort in my chest again. Went, had another angiogram. The doctor said, you have 90% blockage in your main artery. I said to him, well, what are my options? He said, well, your options are, you can, you, we can do nothing, but you have to live a sedentary life. I said, cross that off. He said, we can stent it, but it's near your heart. It could be very risky. I said, cross that off. He said, oh, we can do open heart surgery. I said, you're not cutting me. Cross that off. He says, well, you've run out of options. I said, well, okay. I have one other question. What? There's this little race in April in Boston. I've run it a few times. What do you think? Gave me the best possible answer. He didn't say, yes, you can or no, you can't. He said, I'd be extremely disappointed if you couldn't do it. It gave me that one little word we all need, especially in today's day and age, and that's hope. He gave me hope. I said, okay, let's go. I had open heart, triple bypass surgery. Six months later, I'm crossing the finish line of the Boston Marathon with you, Eric, <laughs> with a bunch of friends, with people who did the 777 with me, oh, with great. my son, Luke, and with this little boy, uh, Jack Middlemiss, yep. who had a heart transplant. Yep. At the same time, I was going through a triple bypass, and all of us crossed the finish line together. Yep. And great. it was the most m- meaningful marathon of my life, not because it was the fastest uh, because it was number whatever. It was just that, as I said, the comeback is always stronger than the setback. And such was the case again. It was the case in 2014 after the bombing. And it was the case personally for me in uh, that year in finishing the Boston Marathon after having open heart triple bypass surgery. So what I'm leaving everyone with here is awareness. 
There's a public safety campaign in Massachusetts. It goes like this. If you see something, say something. My campaign is if you feel something, say something. Don't be so anal to think that you can blast through anything. If you feel it, do something about it. Many, many people have written to me since then, said, I heard about your situation. I knew if it can happen to you, it can happen to me. And I've always felt that sometimes the most fit athletes in the world are the most vulnerable. And so these people say they went into the hospital, got checked, left the hospital with three stents, and they say, you saved my life. I said, well, I didn't save your life. You saved your own life, but I get it. So now it's, it's a mission to make sure that people take care of themselves. Yeah, that's great. End of story. Yeah. That finish line was great with little middle miss man wrapped in that red down jacket and your sisters with the uh, Dave's night run banner and your brother Bob being part of the SAG with Ron. Uh, great family at the finish line. Well, Dave, it has been an extreme pleasure and honor to call you a friend. Uh, just uh, thank you so much for everything you've done for me, for my career. For all the endurance athletes that uh, have that medal with the unicorn on it, and uh, just thank you so much. And we look forward to seeing you uh, in Boston in October and in April in 2022 as well. Thank you, Eric. And like I've always said, it's a team effort. Uh, can't do it alone. There's no such thing as an individual accomplishment in life. And you're part of that team. And I appreciate uh, you and uh, all the folks listening. You know, good luck in your endeavor. And again, take care of yourself. Thank you, Dave. <laughs> so that, that, my friends, is Dave McGilvery. How about that? An overachiever, would you say? An overachiever's overachiever. I've known Dave a long time, since the 80s, and it gives me great, immense pleasure to be able to introduce him to people so that they can get to know him as well. And that was our point here today, to share these stories. And after listening to this conversation, hopefully you know why I hold him in such high regard. And I'm honored to call him a good friend. As Dave Montrose states, it is his game and his rules. And he certainly made that work for him. Next time, we'll bring you another legend of the sport. But in the meantime, swim, bike, run, have fun. Aloha. Thanks for listening. The Chelsea and Eric Show is brought to you by Ironman and Hoka One One.